welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Uh, Kia ora and um, just to reiterate what Donald said, uh, we're so glad you've joined us today. My name is Jason, I'm on staff here at Gateway and uh, this is really a massive privilege for me to have the chance to speak this morning. Uh, I'm certainly not a proficient or experienced preacher, but I realized this morning that I must be like growing or uh, developing somewhat because I think this is the first time I've spoken at Gateway and my parents haven't driven all the way from another town to sit in the front row and cheer me on. So um, I have had a number of texts though, Uh, love my folks. Uh, If you've been gathering with us or listening to the podcast over the last month, you'll know that we have been in our summer series, and in the morning gatherings, we have been looking at revivals throughout history. Don and Chris have both done an incredible job of outlining some of the most uh, significant moves of God uh, throughout history and throughout the world, and if you haven't had a chance to hear those messages, I encourage you to check them out because it's been very encouraging. When I was asked to share as part of this series, it was suggested that I look at moves of God in our land, Aotearoa. And if I'm honest, when I emailed through um, suggesting a date to to Chris, I was um, oblivious of the fact that it was Waitangi weekend, or it just slipped my mind. But I think there's something very special uh, about the fact that uh, on this very significant weekend, we're going to be taking a look at some of the ways in which God has moved in this nation and uh, among our people. Before I launch in, I want to communicate a few things uh, that are really important. By no stretch of any measure do I consider myself an expert or historian when it comes to this topic. I simply want to share some incredible stories that have gripped my heart as I have um, had the chance to prepare this. Also want to acknowledge um, two of the main sources that I have uh, lent heavily on in preparing for this message. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the book on the left. Jenny Sharkey was actually a part of our church community a number of years ago. Uh, And then uh, Bible and Treaty on the right is uh, an incredible uh, book written by Keith Newman. Uh, And if you're interested in this whole area, uh, I suggest you have a read if you haven't already. I don't know about you, um, but often the types of incredible stories and pictures that spring to mind when the word revival is mentioned I picture uh, stories and pictures from distant lands. I can be guilty sometimes of a small town, small country, little brother mindset. It's easy for us to look at the incredible moves of God abroad where members, uh, sorry, where numbers came to Christ in the tens of thousands and to forget that in New Zealand, in its own seasons, we have experienced moves that boast incredible numbers of lives surrendered and transformed. In the decade 1830 to 40, the decade leading up to the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, the Anglican Mission Movement recorded around 30,000 new Christians. Some figures suggest that it's even more than this when considering the Wesleyan and Indigenous mission efforts. These numbers over a 10-year period, 30,000, are pretty staggering, but keep in mind, or, or, or it's important to keep in mind that the population of Aotearoa in this time was only 80,000 Māori and 2,000 non-Māori settlers or immigrants. Over the last few weeks, we have heard of nations where 10 
or 20% of the country's population have turned to God in the space of a couple of years. It's incredible to think that during this 10-year period, well over 40% of the population in our land responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. There are stories throughout the rest of the 1800s where the gospel spread in incredible ways. Open-air gatherings where thousands would gather in places like the Mount Eden Crater. Revival meetings would overflow from large tents and buildings throughout our country. Some of this momentum continued into the 1900s. In 1905, a group of young men in Waihee, so deeply convicted of their Christian responsibilities, began to meet and to pray. The revival that ensued transformed this small town as night after night, large portions of Waihee's population were regularly in revival meetings. The revival went on for months and local churches collaborated to share venues and pastoral care. Of course, large numbers of people embracing the gospel and accepting Christ as their savior is only one of the significant signs of revival. Physical healing was another way in which God was moving throughout Aotearoa. One of the significant examples of this wonderful move of the Holy Spirit is the story of Tahupotiki Ratana. Ratana's ministry began when he saw a strange cloud like a whirlwind rise from the sea, approach and surround him. From the cloud he heard, fear not, I am the Holy Ghost. My eye has looked to and fro all the earth to find a people upon who I can rest. Ratana was told that he was called to heal the spirits and bodies of his people. Ratana immediately began praying for the sick and meditating on the scriptures. The first healing he saw was that of his own son, Omeka. After Ratana prayed for and saw the healing of the daughter of the chief of Wanganui, Te Kohupukuro, word was quick to get out and crowds began to gather. Many lives were transformed through Ratana's ministry. People recalled piles of crutches and wheelchairs accumulated at the local par. Throughout the remainder of the 1900s, despite church numbers being in a state of steady decline, there continued to be large moves of God, most of which appeared to follow off the back of revivals happening overseas and involved visiting evangelists. Of course, Billy Graham's visit to New Zealand was another example. In the case of Graham, tens of thousands came to hear what he had to say, and many lives were transformed. In fact, even though my dad grew up in a Christian family, it was hearing a message preached by Billy Graham in our land that stirred him towards um, making his personal commitment to Christ. The 70s in New Zealand saw its own version of the Jesus movement sweep throughout the country. I'm sure many here remember that season well and will know firsthand the impact that it has had on our land and the church culture in New Zealand. It's important to note that in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, though we might be hesitant to use the word revival, there have been some amazing pockets of moves of God in our nation. Some of you may be familiar with a season even as recent as 2014, where the Holy Spirit completely broke into the community of Kawido. The movement impacted the youth in the town, particularly. 
After a period of eight weeks of daily meetings in the Koedo Community Church, the local high school, with a role of only 450 students, now had 300 new Christians. The principal, the principal stated that over 100 of the students were forming prayer circles during lunch breaks. At the time, the police reported a nil crime rate, something unheard of in Koedo before then. Lately, uh, as we have gathered, we have sung a number of times a prayer inspired by that of Habakkuk. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day and in our time make them known. If I am to pray this prayer for our nation, it's so important that I know what I am asking him to renew. It's not a new idea, and it might sound really obvious to some of you, but I'd like to suggest that God's Spirit was moving in this land from the very beginning. Is it possible that before the earliest of arrivals of any people group in this land, God's Spirit was brooding over these waters in this land? And if so, what might we learn about God's call on our nation by looking at the ways in which His Spirit moved near the beginning of our story? Te ingoa o te rātou ātua, ko tāmai rorokutu, he ātua pai o tira, ka ngaro ano te tangata. The name of their new God will be the son who was killed, a good God. However, the people will still be oppressed. This is a prophecy spoken by an East Coast patriarch, Armatoirua. What is incredible about these words is that they were spoken in 1766, three years before Captain Cook arrived, and many years before any missionary began their work in this land. It seems that God was preparing a way for his light and truth to fill this land through its earliest of people. I want to share one particular story this morning that has gripped my heart in a big way. And a big part of what draws me to share it is that it's a story that takes place long before there were systems or established denominational movements, before touring international preachers or conferences for the thousands. Yet, it is a narrative that precedes perhaps the biggest wave of awakening that this land has seen. The story centers around the life of a Māori chief named Luatara. Luatara was one of the earliest leaders of Ngāpuhi in Northland. We know very little about Luatara's early life. He was the nephew of a strong and powerful northern chief, Hungihika. He was in his early 20s, uh, or he was said to have looked in his early 20s, when Luatara met European whalers in 1805. This brave and enterprising young man somehow made his way onto the whaling ship Argo as it stopped in the Bay of Islands for fresh water. It's hard to imagine what this experience would have been like for Ruatara, not having seen anything of the like and not being able to speak a word of English. Ruatara and a few other Ngāpuhi friends joined the crew of this ship for five months uh, as it uh, worked in the waters off the coast of New Zealand. Ruatara enjoyed the experience very much, but unfortunately the captain of the ship betrayed him and put him ashore without paying his wage as he had promised. 
Not to be deterred, Ruatara found another whaler to crew on. The Santa Anne was headed for Bounty Islands to hunt for seals. But once he was put ashore, Ruatara was told that the ship would return. Um, but on its return journey, the Santa Anne ran into violent storms and was blown off course. The ship was badly damaged and lost most of its sails. Meanwhile, Ruatara and some of the others stranded on this deserted island were stuck there for three months, surviving only just on what they could find. Without fresh water, they were near starving. In fact, three of the crew members didn't survive long enough to see the Santa Anne's sails return over the horizon. You would expect by now that Ruatara would have had enough of his adventures. This pattern of what happens when you leave home wasn't turning out so great. But he was informed on the return of the ship that it was headed for England. And the captain convinced Ruatara to stay for the duration, promising that on his arrival, he could meet King George III and visit him at his house. When the whaler docked in the Thames, after months at sea, on July 1809, Ruatara asked the captain to make good on his promise, but the crew mocked him, informing him no one was permitted to visit the king in his house. Ruatara, having been duped again, was stuck on board this ship for 15 days, and then transferred to a different boat full of convicts, chartered by the British government and headed for New South Wales, Australia. On the ship, this captain refused to pay his wages, denied him a change of clothing, and simply informed him that there were to be two muskets waiting for him in Port Jackson. In the years leading up to this, the New South Wales convict colony had a new chaplain and magistrate by the name of Samuel Marsden. Marsden had moved to Australia from his English homeland on the personal recommendation of William Wilberforce. Marsden made a big impact on the colonies in New South Wales and earned a reputation for strongly and actively opposing the unfair treatment of the Aboriginal people. Marsden purchased large sections of land in Parramatta, planted all sorts of crops, and attained large numbers of livestock. One of the things he became passionate about was teaching new agricultural skills to the many immigrant families settling in the growing town of Port Jackson. Marsden first learnt of the Māori people through the whaler and trading ships that would stop off in Port Jackson after being in New Zealand. His desire to take the gospel to our land, to bring the gospel to our land, was reinforced by personal encounters that he had with Māori, most of whom were fleeing what was essentially slave labour on these ships. They would find a place to stay and work on Marsden's farm. Marsden sailed back to England in 1807 to request support from English mission groups to send missionaries to New Zealand. Despite hesitation to support him, he finally managed to drum up some support, and with that, he boarded a ship to return to New South Wales, a ship full of convicts. And this is where our two characters' stories collide in the most incredible of ways. Keith Newman relays the story this way. Once Marsden had acclimatized himself, 
His eyes wandered to the faces of the passengers and crew members. Then he observed in front of the mast, in contrast to the sailors on the upper deck, a dejected-looking, dark-skinned man in an old great coat, coughing up blood and seeming close to death. After identifying Ruatara as Māori, Marsden questioned the miserable man about how he came to be in such a state. Ruatara relayed the stories of his harsh treatment aboard the Santa Anne, the cruel beatings when he was too ill to work, and the failure of the captain to pay his wages and fulfill his promises. Marsden took Ruatara to his own cabin, where he was fed and nursed back to health. He made steady progress in learning English and the, the alphabet and pronunciation, and Marsden started compiling a Māori vocabulary. He took time to listen, to make notes on the local customs and political st structures. He asked Ruatara about Māori beliefs, their gods, and creation myths. Marsden worked very hard to understand the makeup and the story of Ruatara's whānau. You can imagine, after all that he had been through, how incredibly healing this interaction would have been for Ruatara. On arrival in Port Jackson, Marsden insisted that Ruatara stay with him on his, his family farm and stay with his family until he was able to recuperate. When he was able, Ruatara even began working on the farm and he learned many new skills. Over time, though, Ruatara became uh, anxious to return to his people in the Bay of Islands. Marsden arranged for Ruatara to return home on board a whaling ship with an, uh, a man named Captain Bodhi. Bodhi insisted that Ruatara and other friends would be dropped off in the Bay of Islands after a quick trip to Norfolk Island. Once at Norfolk, Bodhi sent Ruatara ashore for fresh water, but once the water had been fetched and was on board, Bodhi told Ruatara, who had just almost drowned in the tide, he had no intention on returning him to his land and left him behind. So we're starting to lose count of the amount of times that this man has been ripped off. I mean, he'd probably had his lifetime's worth of being left behind on islands. Ruatara was rescued by another ship and returned to Port Jackson, where he waited for a full year before being able to return to his land. Soon after his return, Ruatara's elder brother passed away, elevating his status to chief of his iwi and seeing him inherit large uh, sections of land. Not only did Ruatara return to Northland with incredible stories, he was quick to share with his tribe the new agricultural skills and resources that he had returned with. The Ngāpuhi tribe quickly developed these skills and were soon able to begin trade, selling all sorts of things from ship masts, potatoes, uh, and all kinds of other supplies to visiting ships. Marsden's enthusiasm to travel to New Zealand and peacefully establish mission bases alongside Māori never wavered, but it was a couple of years before he was able to leave his responsibilities in New South Wales to do so. 
Chief Ruatara actually traveled back to Port Jackson and was able to accompany Marsden on his journey to the land he had longed to travel to for so long. As their ship entered the Bay of Islands early on the morning of December 22nd, 1814, two waka filled with Ngāpuhi men approached to greet the travellers. Ruatara was embraced by his people and then helped to pilot the ship towards his pass site, Rangihua. The days that followed must have been incredible for both parties. The people of Ngāpuhi had never seen cows or horses and marveled as they were unloaded from the ship. They were even more surprised when Marsden mounted his horse and rode it down the beach. Ruatara had tried to tell them about men riding animals, but they thought he was lying to them. The local tribe were excited to share food and resources and their customs with their new European friends. Preparation for the first sermon to be preached on New Zealand soil began. Ruatara fenced off about half an acre of land by the beachfront in Oahi Bay. On Christmas Day, 1814, Samuel Marsden rode ashore to find that Ruatara had created a wonderful outdoor setting for the gathering. He built a lectern out of a waka and two planks of wood. He had also made seating for the missionaries. Ruatara called all of the tribe to come and sit and surround Marsden, and there was a solemn pause before Marsden launched into song, singing Psalm 100, praise God from whom all blessings flow, Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Marsden preached from the Gospel of Luke 2, verse 10. And an angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Even though Ruatara acted as interpreter, his people struggled to make sense of this wonderful Christmas story. Their chief took time later to explain further. Marsden wrote, when I had done preaching, he, Ruatara, informed them of what I had been talking about. And in this manner, the gospel has been introduced to New Zealand. And I fervently pray that the glory of it may never depart from its inhabitants till time shall be no more. As they left the enclosure, three to 400 Māori surrounded the Europeans and performed a rousing haka. What I would give to be there to experience that moment. You've got to wonder whether Marsden thought he was going to die that day. <laughs> and yet, there was nothing more honouring that the people of Ngāpuhi could have offered Marsden than this haka. This special relationship continued to grow over the coming weeks. Ruatara negotiated with Māori in the Bay of Islands the purchase of some land for Marsden and his team to set up a mission base. Unfortunately, only weeks after the famous Christmas Day gathering, Ruatara fell ill. A fever turned into a more serious sickness, and Ruatara was placed in a state of tapu by his whānau. This meant that only close family members were able to be at his bedside. Marsden and some others tried to visit, but were given limited access. Some of the tribe blamed the Europeans 
for the sickness that had struck their rangatira, or leader. Marsden persisted, and after much debate, was allowed to sit with his friend, who is now suffering severe bowel pain and evidently dying. Ruatara, although in great pain, was able to reassure Marsden that his people would continue to build relationship and make way for the work of the missionaries. Marsden afterwards wrote, I can scarcely bring myself to believe that the divine goodness would remove from the earth a man whose life was of such infinite importance to his country. No doubt he has done his work and finished his appointed course, though I had fondly imagined he had only begun his race. On the 3rd of March, 1815, Chief Luatara, the man who had done such an incredible job of paving the way for peace between people, took his last breath. Keith Newman writes, Luatara's tragic death only 10 weeks after the historic 1814 service meant the missionaries had lost not only their chief protector, but the man whose hospitality had made the arrival of the missionaries and the building of the mission station possible. Luatara's pa stood on the hilltop above the bay, and during his tangi, greenery was laid at the foot of the hill to honour his role as Te Aramo Te Rongopai the gateway for the good news. In the years that followed Ruatara's death, Marsden continued to work alongside the people of Ngāpuhi. Many Māori learned to read and understand God's word, and many trained as missionaries, inspired to take the good news to the people of Aotearoa. As I mentioned earlier, the two decades that followed this story the people of this land responded to the gospel in incredible ways. Some have argued, based on statistics, that 1830 to 40 in New Zealand might be the greatest Christian awakening the world has seen, with over 40% of the population responding to the invitation to salvation in that 10-year period. I believe there are some amazing insights and lessons to be learned from this story and from the man that they called the gateway for the good news. Firstly, the story is hard to read without seeing the divine leading, guiding, and weaving together of the people in it. The fact that Ruatara even survived his younger years, adventuring on numerous whaling ships could be considered providence. The fact that Samuel Marsden greatly impacted by the humanitarian movements led by the likes of William Wilberforce, finds himself in Port Jackson, but with his heart so deeply moved to share the gospel with the Māori people. The fact that these two men find themselves on the same ship, but for such different reasons. When Don shared a couple of weeks ago about the incredible strength persistence, and resilience of those individuals who shaped the Great Awakening in the US and the UK in the 1700s. He talked about men and women who relied on a borrowed power. It's okay for us to look on in admiration at the great work that some of these historical figures did, but it's also important to remember that these individuals were not in a position to see the great things they saw without the work of the Holy Spirit weaving stories together. 
We might look at today's story and call the events that lined up so beautifully coincidence. But I'd like to suggest that these two lives were woven together in a way that only God can. It's a reminder again for me that we might work and plan and long to see God use us in the places that we find ourselves. But there is also something freeing about, the hold, about holding our plans and our lives with a posture of surrender and allowing the master weaver to be the one who orders our steps, as the psalmist puts it. Another aspect of this story that has challenged me is the grace, patience, acceptance, willingness to listen, and mutual respect that formed the rich soil of the relationship between Marsden and Uatara. Both men went to great lengths to honor one another and consider the things that were unique and important to each other. Marsden and Uatara were able to put things aside that had seen interactions between their people groups turn sour. Through this shared respect, a way was made for the work of God in our nation. As we live in the communities we are part of, we have opportunity and responsibility to listen to people, to be patient as we continue to understand the people and get alongside the people who are different to us. I'm not suggesting that this isn't already happening in so many, in so many of your lives, but I wonder about the ways in which God might be able to bring his light into our community when we learn even more what it is to tether our great hope and message of the cross to listening ears and warm hearts. Lastly, I believe redemption and revival can't help but come when there is a revelation of Christ's love. Without a revelation of this great love, what reason would have Marsden had to treat the Aboriginal and Māori people any different to the way that so many in his position did? It was Christ's love that inspired Marsden to care for and befriend an unknown man on a ship full of convicts, a man who others had forgotten, ripped off, and left for dead. I believe it was the same notion of Christ's love that saw Ruatara welcome Marsden to join his people with a hospitality unlike any extended to travelers in this land at that time. The same love that won out over the bitterness that Ruatara could well have held in his heart, given the way he had been treated on his journeys. And this message of grace and love transformed this nation in those years. Amidst the culture of grab what you can at any cost, Marsden and many other missionary groups worked hard to settle in the land without simply thinking about what their gain would be. Tribes of Māori turned away from centuries-old ideas of utu, or revenge, which had been the cause of so much intertribal conflict and hurt. Christ's example of turning the other cheek and instruction to love your enemy made way for peace throughout the country. Of course, we know that the story does not end there, and it would be remiss of us to ignore the painful and heartbreaking chapters of the story that have followed. We only need to read the news, or even worse, 
the comments under the online articles on this Waitangi weekend to know that we live, the New Zealand we live in is still very much in desperate need for Christ's message of love and redemption. It struck me as I read again the prophecy mentioned earlier. The name of their God will be the son who was killed, a good God, however the people will still be oppressed. It's still true. It's true for people of all nationalities and backgrounds who call this nation home. You might say to me, what we need is for people to have a revelation of their sinfulness. Then we might see revival in our nation. And I would say, yep, that needs to happen too. But if we look at this story and so many stories, both in and outside of Scripture, when the message of Christ's love and hope breaks into people's lives, then a work of transformation can take place. Hannah and Bevan, would you come? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we have heard of these things that you have done in our land, and we are amazed at the ways in which you have woven people and their stories together. Would you place a longing in our hearts to see you move in this land in these ways again? Lord, would you do a work of unifying all of the people who call New Zealand home? We need your spirit here. We dare to believe that you have been doing a work in this land from the very start. And we ask that our lives would become part of that work as you have your way in this land. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.